Oh, did I do that? Sorry. You motherfucker. <laughs> Rodriguez, who? Hammers Rodriguez? <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez? Family. Welcome to episode 25 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's May 2022, and it turns out having something other than COVID dominating the news headlines doesn't feel as good as we hoped. We're here to help you through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello there. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called DoubleReelPodcast and a DoubleReelPodcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 25. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds, with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, we're looking at Taika Waititi's Oscar-winning black comedy, Jojo Rabbit. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 25, we look at the efforts of Robert Rodriguez to reboot the Predator franchise. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses the 2005 Adam Sandler version of The Longest Yard. We also take a look at its proper naughty little brother, (laughs) The Mean Machine. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 25, we have a spotlight and deep dive on the fascinating film career of David Fincher. But first, some messages from the listeners, a.k.a. the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Phil gets in touch with some film suggestions. I recommend you check out three films by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, Resolution, The Endless, and Synchronic. Great cult sci-fi with a lot of Lovecraft influences, which you've discussed on the pod before. Would love to hear what you think. Well, we'll check those out. Lee saw the new Doctor Strange film, which we'll be discussing in the roundup, and says, pretty crap, I thought. I mean, it it would probably be good in isolation or good for a Marvel nerd, but I thought it was the same as all the others. They're also milking it with this multiverse nonsense as it's created endless amounts of the same films, just different heroes. Seen it all before. We'll also be discussing the new Nick Cage film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and Muck says, it was actually surprisingly good. I would really recommend it. Best film I've seen him in for about 20 years. In our big conversation topic for this month, Curtis says, David Fincher is one of my top 10 all-time favourite directors. Seven is my favourite of his, and Alien 3 is his worst. Not much love for Alien 3 generally among the listeners, although Bradley says, I like the assembly cut, but it sucks how bad the producers butchered what might have been. I tend to agree. A few other votes for Fight Club and The Social Network, and Mank and Benjamin Button are the other least favourite among our listeners. Oh. 
On our cubic entry, Lolita, uh, Alex said, I feel so sorry for the girl's mother. Yes, terrible outcome for her all round in the film. On our remake, Hate Watch of The Longest Yard, David says, can't beat Burt Reynolds at his best, but The Adam Sandler is an okay movie. Laura says the British version is more like Escape to Victory than the original Longest Yard. Yeah, I thought so too. On our one that got away in Robert Rodriguez and Predators, Joe says, seems like Hollywood always takes the boring easy road instead of making unique, great films. Well, Chris says, I thought the Predators film we eventually got was very good. Mm. On, our, on our hidden gem, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Art says, as brilliant as Brazil and Time Bandits are, this one might even be better. And on our classic Jojo Rabbit, Lee Moore on Twitter says, really enjoyed it. Joshua says, should have won Best Picture. Ryan said, good things in it, but some of the humour didn't fit with the subject matter. There was quite a lot of chat about Jojo Rabbit, actually. Uh, Lex says, it did a brilliant job of exposing the absurdity of hatred and propaganda while still respecting the subject. It's in the tradition of Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Interesting point. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film, not very far sometimes, and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Versus The Celebrity Court Case, is out now. So that piece of self-promotion aside, uh, James, what news has uh, caught your eye recently? Um, I'm not going to lie, I've not, have, have you, have, am I just missing some big film news? The, I, saw, I suppose some sort of aftermath of the Oscars debacle was that Dave Chappelle got attacked on stage um, by a guy who was carrying a knife, I think. And then he, he got his arms broken by security and taken away and arrested. But Chris Rock came up to comfort Dave Chappelle and said, was that Will Smith? <laughs> yeah, I did see that. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's an indication of Will Smith. It's not Will Smith, sorry. Chris Rock is, you know, taking a rather light, which I imagine he would, um, view of it all. Um, yeah, I imagine over time, you know, I think... <laughs> I think a 55-year-old a, a black man in this country has probably been subjected to worse than that and had to laugh it off, especially what he does for a living. So I think he will get past this. <laughs> um, film news? Um... There was an incident in which Bill Murray's latest film uh, had production oh, suspended after yeah. complaints were made against him for inappropriate behaviour. Now, was this sexual misconduct or was it just him being a cunt? No, I couldn't quite determine what it was. I didn't see the detail and I think they're maybe keeping a bit tight-lipped about what they've actually um, uh, accusing him of. Um, uh, Bill Murray has all he said about it. I did something I thought was funny and it wasn't taken that way. It was behaviour towards a woman. Um, the film's called Being Mortal. I don't think we're going to hear full details of it, but it's alleged misconduct. I think it's something that you would call as harassment or an inappropriate comment. So a bit of a shame that that's happened, uh, but we don't really know any more than that. Um, one that might have passed you by, mate, because I don't think he's a particularly big name these days, is an actor called Fred Ward died. Okay. He was 79. He had a long career starting in 1973. He did various bits and pieces of TV work. Um, films we've discussed on the podcast that he's been in he was in Southern Comfort the Walter Hill film that we discussed in our big conversation 
couple of episodes back. <clears throat> he was also one of the leads in The Right Stuff, which is one of the best films of the 1980s about the early American space program. Um, he was in season two of um, True Detective, which isn't the good one, is it? Um, it's the shit one, yeah. He's one of those people we'd look at him and go, oh, yeah, him. Um, he's had a long, productive career. He's been very good when given the chance. Um, so, obviously, rest in peace, Fred Ward. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of other news. I mean, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case oh, con- shit, con- yeah, continues. continues on, yeah. But, I mean, every day there's a, you know, there's a headline. Well, not necessarily that was the latest episode in our podcast, so in our other podcast, so we kind of dissect it. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to see it dissected by us, you can, uh, you can look at it there, right? Um, a couple of trailers have dropped. Avatar Two: The World of Water. I don't know if you saw that. Is it not the way of the water? Yeah, sorry. Did I? Well, yeah, something like that. Yeah. The world of water. Avatar Two. I mean, the way water of the water is not much better. Is Avatar it? Two: Water World. Um, it's the same. Well, that's another Kevin Costner reboot, like the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. He, the first one's dances with Smurfs, and this one's going to be Water World. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it looks like he's put a lot of money in making it look very impressive visually, whether the story is... Pretty. I did see a decent defense of Avatar the other day that says, if you want to make a film that gets seen by two billion people, the message has to be pretty simple. Uh, and to, and and for two billion dollars of, of box office around the world, for a film that basically criticizes American foreign policy, corporate corruption and destruction mm-hmm. of the environment, it's maybe a little bit harsh to completely dismiss it. Do you know what I mean? Which is a fair point, but it's still... I mean, I've got the Blu-ray on my shelf, and it's not a film I even consider going back to watch very often. I don't know about you. Um, I look back I look back on it quite fondly. It is, it's a very well-done film. I yeah. think not like it's not like a steak. I don't mean like overcooked. I mean, it's like a, it's a yeah. polished film. I enjoy it. The CGI and the effects for the time for 2009 are excellent. Mm-hmm. And the story is inoffensive. You know, it's nothing, nothing outlandish that I disagree with. You know, it's... You know, it's it's very swashbuckling in that kind of sense, and it's, there's nothing like there's no tremendous acting in it that makes me go, oh wow, like that deserved yeah. the fucking eighteen Oscar nominations it ended up getting. But yeah. no, I thought it was. Um, we'll see what happens. Film. Yeah, I mean, the problem is there's a lot of pressure now. I mean, when James Cameron in the '80s was coming out with you know the Terminator, um, Aliens, The Abyss, and then in the '90s he did Terminator Two and True Lies and Titanic, which while I don't like it, it was a massive hit and everything. Again, now, Titanic for me is the same kind of vibe as Avatar. It's all right. It's a good film. It's quite sad, and other, other than that, it's nothing. It's nothing outstanding and didn't deserve all the yeah, Oscars yeah, at one. Yeah. That kind of one. It, it's just it, it. For someone who likes to watch films and likes James Cameron on top form, it is a bit of a shame you have to wait thirteen years for each film. That's the only worry I have about this is that Avatar in itself was good, mm. very good at a push. Yeah, not that excellent that we have to wait 14 years for this one or is it 13, 14? Yeah, it's almost no no film can live up to that, can it? Yeah. So, yeah, we'll yeah. see. Um, there's also a, a very interesting, it's a very, it's like a 10 second teaser trailer, but it's worth looking out for. It's called Prey. Okay. P-R-E-Y, Prey, as in someone who is watching out for a predator. The victims of someone who prays P R A Y like a priest. But basically, it's a prequel in the Predator series. Okay. And, and it's set during early, early um, Native American times. And it's a young Comanche warrior um, is the target of one of the first um, Predator hunters to reach Earth. Wow, that sounds awesome. 
So it's coming out this August. It's going to be on Disney Plus in this country. We don't, and Hulu in America, we don't know if it's going to get a cinema release. I actually really hope it does. That sounds quite interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. That does sound very interesting. Um... So other than that, um, I am interested in seeing the day this episode is released, so after we've recorded, so I can't tell you anything else about how it goes. David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future, premieres at the Cannes Film Festival. Now, I'm very excited about this because people of my generation look back very fondly on Cronenberg's kind of body horror era of the 80s. Um, And he's made a return to this after decades away doing other films. And those other films are very good, but Cronenberg going back to classic Cronenberg is very interesting. And he predicts that some people will be walking out of the film in the first five minutes. He's not compromising on on like the horrors in it. Um, So... We'll tell you. We'll be able to tell you a bit more next uh, next month See, how that. The problem I have with Cannes is that Cannes will absolutely love films, give it standing ovations, and it will be absolutely adored, and then everyone gets hyped up for it, and it ends up being utter shit. Yeah, that happened with that. Um, what's his name? Justin Kurzel's Macbeth with Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard. Yeah. Shite, utter shite, terrible film, nonsense. Cut out half the film. Well, half the play, sorry. The play's probably meant to be about three hours long. It ends up being an hour and 50 minutes, but it got a standing ovation at Cannes, so everyone loved it. Yeah. It was shit. So I would ignore yeah. whatever Cannes says about oh, that yeah. film and watch it for yourself. What I'm hoping Cronenberg does is completely divide the audience so that half the people are giving it a standing ovation at the end and half the people are booing. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like um, when he did his um, film Crash, super controversial, did it as one of the classics early on. Um it was hugely controversial. They banned it in, in parts of London because councils give out film certificates in this country or permit it to be released. Um, it won a prize at Cannes, but Francis Coppola, who was the head of the Cannes panel that year, asked someone else to give it out because he hated the film so much he didn't want to be the one to give Cronenberg the prize. So that's that's how Cronenberg rolls. I'm looking forward to that. So hold on. It was banned in Britain. Only in, parts, in only in parts of Britain. Basically, it's really weird. You get your certificate, like an 18 or a 15 or whatever in the UK, but then whether a film can be shown in cinemas in a given part of the country is down to that local council. Okay. It's really odd, and it's very, most of the time it goes, well, it's been passed 15 by the BBFC. Of course, it's been allowed to be shown there. But Crash was so controversial because it shows people get turned on by having car accidents, right? Um, huh. But... Westminster Council, who have a bit of a reputation for this, they're dickheads, banned it. And everyone said, it's really hilarious that you're banning this when you're the, you're the part of London that's got all the sex shows and all the prostitution and all the vice, and you're banning people from watching a David Cronenberg art film. But um, it was, Is it shit, though? I've never seen it. Is it shit? It's brilliant, but I don't ever want to watch it again. Is it shit? No, it's, it's brilliant, but I don't ever want to watch it again because no. it's so harsh. It's like Is that the one hell. that beat um, Brokeback Mountain? No, 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 no. That's that's the that's the crash film that's shit. That's the all hippy dippy privileged white people in Los Angeles are really down with racism. Oh. Crash came Crash came out in nineteen ninety six, and it's based on a nineteen ninety six. It came out in ninety six, and it's based on a JG Ballard novel about people who get turned on during car crashes, and it's super transgressive. Um, <laughs> it's that was pure. That was they like everyone hated this film, didn't they? <laughs> Like this is the film that somehow won Best Picture and no one knew yeah, why, yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. saying it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, diff- <laughs> di- different crash. This is why you always have to preface it with David Cronenberg's crash, but yeah, that's, um, yeah. So we'll see how that one turns out. That, his films are very, very much not for everyone, um, but brilliant for those who, who do like them. So it's on to new releases, and look, a quick mention, there's a new release that's actually already out, but we missed it last month because it got its release date confirmed so late, it was only a week before it came out that it got confirmed that it was going to be released. 
so we missed it on our episode. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That film is out now. Um, what was that about again? That sounds familiar. It stars Michelle Yeoh as a small business owner who's a bit downtrodden. Her business is about to go through a tax audit led by Jamie Lee Kurtz. Her life's all going a bit wrong. Nothing's turned out how she hoped. And then she finds out that she's just one of many versions of herself in, in multiverse multiverses. And she's the chosen one who's the only one who can fight off a cosmic threat across all of these parallel worlds. Okay. And it turns out that she's got amazing abilities uh, if she can just unlock them. And it's and it's apparently it's absolutely bonkers. It's uh, basically Jamie Lee Curtis is saying this is what Doctor Strange was trying to do. Only good. <laughs> She's come right out and, and and done it. It's getting really rocking reviews. And it's Michelle Yeoh carrying a big movie like this. And I I remember when we saw when I watched Eternals. So my main criticism I didn't get to see enough Michelle Yeoh doing Michelle Yeoh shit. Well, this is all the Michelle Yeoh doing Michelle Yeoh shit you could possibly ask for in one movie. So. I've not had a chance to see it because it's literally just come out and with the timings, it just wasn't possible to get a screening in yet. I'm going to see it in a couple of days. I'll, we'll, we can talk about it the next uh, the next episode, but I'm quite excited about that. It's also quite notable for the return to acting of uh, Kei Hui Kwan of the Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom and Goonies uh, fame after a 20-year absence. So there's a lot Mr. Jones! That's right, yeah. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, uh, fun reasons to watch that movie. He must be some age now. Yeah, he's like 50, and he, he basically... Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. Is he? Well, Temple of Doom was in 1984, and he was about 10. Oh, shit, yeah. So maybe he's like, yeah, so he's all 12, yeah. So he's, he's nearly 50, uh, at the very least. Um, so, yeah. Other than that, films that are coming out in the next four weeks between this episode being released and the next episode, Top Gun Maverick is on the 27th of May. That's getting incredible reviews. Have yeah, you seen that? I saw the trailer and wasn't that struck on it, but I have to say, a full movie of someone going of you know going full bore, you know, dog fighting movies. I reckon maybe it will be, maybe it will be good. Um, yeah, the thing is, if, if I find out that the trailer wasn't all that and the film was great, I'm not going to complain because I hate you when the trailers like show you the best bits of a film, right? So I'm still probably going to go and see it. You know, there's the Bob's Burgers movie is out. Um, it's based on another. I mean, I've never seen the TV show. I hear good things. I don't think I'll be running out to that. Um, mm. Now we mentioned, I think, this film Men, or I, I saw the trailer for it. It was the, saw the trailers like last month. It seemed to have got his release pushed back slightly. It's that Alex Garland horror film. Um, there's a okay. couple of Queen Elizabeth II documentaries out because it's the Jubilee. Um, on the third of June, there's a film called Dash Cam, which is a horror movie about a road trip gone wrong. And I think the tr- you know the, the gimmick is that you see a lot of the footage through a dash cam, which might be interesting. Interesting. I like stuff like that where the film's obviously cost yeah. effective, and they're trying to. That sounds like they've tried to work within their means. Yeah, yeah, like un, un, like unfriended that one where like all the pe- everything's been going going tits up through people's webcams. That was quite an interesting idea yeah. for a movie. Um, 10th of June, Jurassic World, Dominion. Uh, I didn't even see the last Jurassic World film. I'm not that bothered. Uh, 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 I'll probably go see it because I like dinosaurs and I'm only 25. But, yeah, um, yeah. And I did see the, the last one was shit. As, as much as I like dinosaurs, it, it, it's shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's The Righteous, which is an indie horror mystery with religious overtones. Also on the 10th of June, uh, Listen, a Portuguese social drama about immigrants with a deaf child who find themselves at the mercy of a of the British social services system. Um, sounds quite heavy, but I mean, I think, you know, stories like that need to be told. Um, quite relevant as well, given the whole Windrush thing that was going on at the Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 17th of June, Lightyear, the Toy Story spin-off. Um, Can't be fucked with that. It looks, a bit bere- it looks a bit bereft of ideas, if you ask me. Yeah. 
Pleasure comes out on the 17th of June, which is a Swedish indie drama about a Scandinavian porn actress trying to make it in America. Uh, 24th of June, The Black Phone. It's a horror film starring Ethan Hawke as a serial killer who abducts children. Abducts children. Abducts children. (laughs) Uh, Directed by Scott Derrickson, who did the first Doctor Strange film. So, see what that's like. Um, Mm. And uh, also on the 24th of June, Elvis, uh, the new biopic uh, of Elvis Presley, directed by Baz Luhrmann. No. um, No. My tolerance for Baz Luhrmann is, unless the reviews are absolutely stellar across the board, I'm just not not giving up my evening to watch another Baz Luhrmann film. He's just shit. I've not liked any of his films. I don't like Shakespeare, so I don't like that Romeo and Juliet film that he gets wanked off for. Moulin Rouge, shit. Australia. Moulin Rouge. Australia. I I watched... Australia's a very long film, and it is shit. Uh, It's just shit. There's no other words for it. It's just wasting the talents of two good actors in a film that... I I don't even know what the point of that film was, but it's rubbish. Um, and then I, th- I, think, I think for 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 a bunch of Australian filmmakers to make an Australian film called Australia, I think that's just asking too much. I mean, you're trying to sum up your whole country in one movie. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like it, it was it was it was it was asking to fail. Do you know what I mean? It's like imagine 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 doing a film called America and saying right this is this is going to be what the the story of the American frontier. It's just too big, and and I think that also you know Baz Luhrmann. Baslerman always has this tendency to sort of dip over into absolute self-indulgent nonsense, and then what's obviously his passion project—that's just going to be un- un- unwatchable. I, fa- I, I, I watched the trailer and felt like I'd lived through the history of Australia, so I'm not watching the fucking film. And then, <laughs> uh, Great Gatsby, mm. shit. Yeah, like yeah. The Robert Redford one. The Great Gatsby is shit. Can we can we put that out there? The book is shit. F. Scott Fitzgerald was shit. The Great Gatsby is a terrible, terrible, terrible fucking book. It's boring. Nothing happens. It's nonsense. And the films that I've made about it are just as bad as the the book. It, they're awful. And I don't care if it's set in the area where people were just getting drunk and giving each other STDs and living till 30 and waiting for the Great Depression to end their lives. It was. It's a rubbish film. It's a rubbish story. And I hate how everyone thinks, oh, well, because they got Leonardo DiCaprio to wear a cream fucking suit that it's an okay film and deserves an Oscar. Fuck off. Shite. I mean, I don't think there's been a good film based on an F. Scott Fitzgerald film or story. I, you know, it's ready, ready to be corrected. Um, but that's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, Baz Luhrmann is not not the one to get to me. So yeah. those are the films that are out of the cinema in the next four weeks. Um, I think there are some interesting things out there. So I hope something's caught your eyes and ears that you want to go and see. Uh, and then we always move on to films that we went to see. Um, obviously, we, we we sometimes throw in new films we've seen on streaming, but the the main event is going to see things at the cinema. So, James, what did you go and see at the cinema this month? I didn't get to see the Nicolas Cage film, just I've been working every weekend back shift, so I've been working from 12 till 10 every weekend, so um, not didn't really get a chance to go and see it, but we did manage to make time to go and see the new Doctor Strange. Okay, um, so very quickly on the Nicolas Cage film, what I'll do is I'll give you like 30 seconds of what I thought of it, and then when you have got around to seeing it, we'll talk about it in more detail. Yeah, but I'll probably have to wait for it to come out on stream. <clears throat> yeah, we can but, put a but, bookmark but, here. But, <laughs> but for the benefit of the audience, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the meta elements and the fact they weren't overpowering. Yeah, like yeah. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of there was fourth wall breaking. There's lots of references to his career and stuff like that, but it's not over the top. I thought that was quite good. Well, when over the top's wrong. It wasn't overpowering. There's lots of this film that's over the top. That's the point. Um, I thought it generally stood up as a movie, and it wasn't just a bunch of in jokes. Um, Nicholas Cage plays his own imaginary friend, which is really amusing. 
He plays his imaginary friend is the Nick Cage who goes nuts on talk shows and does all the crazy <laughs> acting from his films. And he goes, Nick fucking woo, Cage is how he introduces himself. There's lots of good stuff in it. It reminded me of Tropic Thunder, and I don't think it's good as that, but I did really like it. When you've seen it, let's if even if it's yeah, it a, even like if it's a bonus feature, we'll, we'll 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 do something. Not even on it. taking it's not taking itself seriously. I don't think which is the best. No, it's it. yeah. I I thought it, I thought it worked. I thought it worked. Maybe not. Maybe not as you you said it right at the last episode. Let's not build this up too much. Let's just go and see it. And I think you were right because I think I enjoyed it for what it was. And there's some really good stuff in it. Okay, but we can talk about it in more detail when you've seen it as well. But now, Doctor Strange at the Multiverse of Madness. Now we both saw this, so we can we can get into this a bit more. Um, yeah, shite. Uh, if you want the short short answer, it was utter nonsense. It was pish. Um, I've I, seen people that love it. I've spoken to folk at work who said it was good, and they enjoyed the kind of kooky elements and the kind of you know how absurd it all was. But yeah, it was rubbish. There's there's a number of things. I mean, I. You know, I watched it, and you know, there you go. That's a movie. I didn't, I didn't hate it, but it was really kind of routine, one in one ear out the other. Um, and I think the bit there's a number of problems with it. I think the biggest problem is is that when you get Sam Raimi, who is a horror director, giving this a bit of a, a, a he's meant to come in and give this a bit of a bit of a an extra kind of spin of horror which is what they did with the first Doctor Strange film with, with Scott Derrickson, who's done horror movies before, right? And I think the first Doctor Strange film works, okay? It's not scary, though. No, it's right? not. Yeah, it wasn't intended to be scary, but they just wanted to add that little bit of darkness so that it wasn't just a special effects fest. Right. And I think for what, for what they were trying to do with the first one, it worked. But this one, Doctor Strange at the Multiverse of Madness, right? They're making a direct H.P. Lovecraft reference who's one of the absolute godfather pioneers of the idea of like a, a hidden world um, ready to invade yours and cause all sorts of shit, yeah? And the trailer is full of the weird wide visuals and the director is Sam Raimi who did The Evil Dead and Dragged Me to Hell, right? I'm not expecting a horror movie and I'm not expecting a scary movie, but I'm expecting the multiverse that they get catapulted in to be a weird place, right? a weird kind of, and you're a massive fish out of water in all these different worlds. And in the end, the multiverses that they hop through are just, it's just, oh, it's just some somewhere between an advert for another Marvel movie and pretty much just like you're under the couple of tiny little twists. It was a huge amount of potential wasted when the weirdness, they, they do this bit where they kind of hop through a bunch of worlds and they go, oh, you wouldn't want to be caught in the world where everybody's paint. It's like, okay, but how about being caught in a multiverse where everything is really weird? How about being caught yeah, in a Yeah, and, and that's and the only multiversal any... bit of it, isn't it? Like, yeah. It's just the case of like, oh, um, look at all these different multiverses, but it's it's kind of flown through in the space of about 12 seconds, and then yeah. they get caught in another diff- in a different universe where there's, yeah, I won't spoil it too much, but there's loads of characters yeah. that we've seen before played by different actors and things like that. And, um, and, and the thing is, the story is just hop through, hop through, big action climax without any real kind of thought gone into it. And this yeah. is... You don't have to be full R-rated, 18-rated horror movie to make that work and be compelling because Terry Pratchett, right, his novels are wholly... They're not aimed at younger readers, but they a, a wide audience can enjoy them because it doesn't have a lot of explicit content. But he did any number of novels in his Discworld um, series of books where there is something sort of chewing away at the fringes of your world, right? And something that's happened in your world has 
kicked that off and you are heading for some sort of catastrophe when these two worlds collide and there's this nagging sense that something is coming and you're going to have to do something about it and he's brilliant at it and there was just no sense of that in this film it was um it was just kind of here we go here are some big set pieces with nothing too interesting about them and the other thing that pissed me off again i don't want to spoil the plot because other people are still free to go and watch it and make their own minds up right but the motivation of the villain in this was absolutely rubbish and, pathetic, and quite misogynistic it? and apparently it's it stems from one of the the marvel tv series um but i'm one sorry division yeah i'm sorry right it's fine for there to be continuity between films and tv series but the motivation and behavior and and and, and sort of characterization of a, of a key figure in the story needs to stand up in the movie and this didn't it was like, yeah, with, and it was a, such a, a sh- for such a, sh- um, a a really shallow motivation. You've taken a character who's normally good and made them completely evil. It's like what? Yeah, let, let, I think we need to give it. Spoiler alert! You've got five seconds to stop listening. Um, yeah, for the your, time being. Sh- yeah, sp- just because like, we need to, we do need to kind of dissect sp- this. Pre- press press your fifteen second skip button now. Go for thirty. Uh, basically, the motivation is Wanda is wanting to use this character who can travel through the multiverse to be in a universe where she can take her two sons from another version of herself, another version of Wanda, and um, she's gone completely evil and let her evil kind of not alter ego, but the evil part of her powers take over her entire body. That's yeah. the motivation for her. Yeah, in this film. and and the the thing is right that that's such a when a character does a massive 180 turn like that not happy just it just it's not it takes you out of the film too much and you know they could have done it something like where someone was so um because they, they did they did this with uh spider-man no way home where the character of, of peter parker spider-man acted in a way that was consistent with his character but caused the problem and then had to fix it right and if 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 the if a character is acting in a certain way for understandable reasons, it's broadly consistent with who they are, or you've introduced the idea that they've got this dark side. Okay, fair enough. But they just kind of threw this 180 turn, and there's also like a book of dark spells which supposedly takes things over, but it was just a plot point. There were so many opportunities for this to have more atmosphere and a better story than it had. So, I mean, I was yeah. I was disappointed with this. So, did you go and see anything else at the cinema? No, that's the first time I've been to the cinema since... Oh, Spider-Man? Or am yeah. I missing a film? Yeah, I think Spider-Man was the last thing you went to see at the cinema. Yeah, so... It's been a while, yeah. I th- I th- it's a little bit disappointing that after getting Spider-Man so right, the, the next kind of wave of Marvel films seem a little bit cookie-cutter in production line, don't they? They're just kind of cranking them out. And I think that's a shame. After we don't, we've, we we did our own big conversation about the future of Marvel. And we very much said we didn't want them to do exactly what they did in the last few phases. But we did hope that they would come up with something a bit newer than this, and they haven't. Mm. They haven't at all. It's a shame. With the exception of Spider-Man, which was really, really good. And that's not even full oh, on I, Mark. I saw that's the not Batman even full on MCU. Well. Yep, sorry, the Batman. I remember that now, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the problem, the problem with this is that Marvel's really fucked itself up by basically having Endgame. Because while I enjoyed that, I thought that was an excellent film. I really enjoyed it. But where do you go But the problem that? you have with that is that when you've defeated the biggest bad of all the biggest bads, You've got to try and find a way to make an interesting film. And if you're going to use the multiverse, that's absolutely fine because we've seen it work with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and we've seen it work with Spider-Man um, mm-hmm. No Way Home. But the, 
the the way they made that film work is that there wasn't necessarily a massive big bad. No. In that film, it was kind of a case of it's Peter trying to deal with the repercussions of the things he's been involved in trying to stop, and it was a case of like there wasn't necessarily a humongous villain. It was a case of all these worlds are kind of clashed together, and how does he navigate all of that? How does he protect the ones that he loves? And there wasn't like a kind of you know versus the enemy there are bad guys in yeah, that yeah. film but it wasn't like yeah there, but yeah. the thing is there was a there, there were high stakes whether that's a big bad or whether that's a something that's going to get absolutely kind of ripped apart and we've got to fix this there was high stakes in the main storyline but there was also high personal stakes for peter and spider-man himself yeah and and that balance between the personal struggle and the and the big battle you, you have to have that otherwise you know if you don't have the personal struggle it's just a bunch of soulless set pieces and if you don't have the big action or the big kind of reason to be having the big battle, then it's all a bit underpowered. Um, yeah, and they, they've had they've had similar issues. When I went to see Black Widow, I thought that they that the film was nicely set up, but then the last kind of third of the film was just the same big smashy crashy. And I think it's a shame they don't seem to be able to, like you say, I think they've kind of they've normally you'd say this about TV series, but they jumped the shark a little bit with um, with Endgame, didn't they? Yeah, the problem I also have with these recent Marvel films, other than No Way Home, I think the CGI is getting worse, which doesn't make sense to me because they're still spending hundreds of millions on it. But the CGI in Black Widow was terrible, um, especially the final kind of shot between Florence Pugh and um, Scarlett Johansson. You can notice how bad the CGI is in that is in that final bit, and I thought the CGI in this was just awful. I just mm. thought they hadn't they hadn't even bothered to polish it off. I don't know if that's just a case of Sam Raimi not working on a superhero film. Um, in fifteen years, but I just thought no. I mean, it wasn't I, like it's yeah. like they hadn't combed through it. They hadn't gone through it and edited it properly. I mean, there's no gone... there's no excuses in Marvel for that because they have producers, they have special effects teams, they have people. It's not just all. It's not just the director yeah. who's responsible for things like that. Um, yeah, it. Yeah, it was. It was. It, I think it was a. It's a disappointment. Uh, it's it's a shame. Um, I'm not totally invested in the character of Doctor Strange. Um, I think that the entire existence of his character is a bit stupid. I think the only reason he is now one of the most powerful sources is because he was texting while driving. You know, that, that that's basically where all of this started. And I just, I, I don't actually find him that interesting as a character. I didn't have any interest in his his love stories. I didn't, I didn't care. I really didn't care. I've not got any that much, in, and I, it's not to say that I didn't enjoy the first one. I enjoyed it because it was kind of mind bending and it was interesting to see a kind of sorcerer do all of these things. But I think it just kind of lost. I think I think the they managed to have an arc for him in the first film where he goes from being this arrogant prick to at the end still still arrogant, but he's he realizes he's got to fight for something bigger than himself. Yeah. But in the sec in the second film, once he's been involved in all of this stuff. His storyline was so lacking in in interest that yeah. it's you, you you know and look you I think they could have given him a storyline that, that that had some interest but there was nothing to make you identify with and 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 feel that character struggle the way Peter Parker does do you know what I mean yeah and you know they again they've got they've got fifty sixty years of storylines to draw from to make it to make it interesting and they didn't do it they've got no excuses Marvel has got everything they need to make their films and characters work and they didn't so this is on them. Yeah, and I don't I I don't like the fact that it didn't seem like they were doing anything new. The multiverse stuff isn't new anymore, if that makes sense. You know, it was it was really interesting when they had like, you know, 
the whole uh, Logan stuff. I know that's not really multiverse, but they had um, in especially at X-Men Days of Future Past, they had the kind of time traveling and going back to yourself. So it's like not a new idea of traveling back and going back in time. Now this isn't this isn't like a thing anymore. And the Spider-Man films have done it really well, but you need to you need to pique my interest. And it was just a case yep. of like, is this character a villain? Is this character necessarily yeah. a villain for the the motivation that they have? It's I think it's a lame reason, but they're trying to make it like, oh, who do you feel bad for? Because their motivations are kind of from a pure point of view. They're just doing bad things for that pure point of view, and it we've we've seen that that before. Trying to make a villain that's almost not a villain, and the multiverse stuff to me isn't isn't as like it hasn't got a novelty anymore. They need to absolutely. Need to the the thing is, the the multiverse is you know. The multiverse is established. It's not just established in Marvel. It's established yeah. as a place where stories can happen. So, as you say, you can't just get people excited about the fact that this is happening in the multiverse. You have to, like Spider-Man No Way Home did, use that opportunity, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, use that opportunity to make really interesting stories happen. And they didn't. So, there you go. So that's Doctor Strange, unfortunately. Uh, that's what we went to see at the cinema. Um now, after we've talked about what we went out to see, we we just generally talk about our resolutions, about our film-watching resolutions for the year. Your resolution is just try and see more films. Uh, aside from what you went to see at the cinema, is there anything else that you saw on streaming I'm or otherwise? I'm just going to get my Netflix loaded up. Well, I remember, you know, basically my, my partner and I, we've been watching She's never seen the Star Wars sequels. I know we were talking about this before we actually started doing the pod, but yeah. um, been watching, watch The Force Awakens, watched The Last Jedi, and we've just started. I had, I had just after we finished The Last Jedi, I said, wait, you have to see the start of The Rise of Skywalker to understand how bonkers this set of films gets. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's where we are with that. Um, but yeah, watching those films again and just realizing that yeah. Yeah, they're not great. Yeah, shame. Massive opportunity wasted. Anything else that you saw? Um, don't have we watched anything? I can't think so off the top of my head. But mostly, um, mostly just been quite a big Star Wars month actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I got I got the little one Rohan to watch about twenty minutes of the first Star Wars film. How did he enjoy it? He loved it, but his his attention span is 20 minutes. So he sat absolutely wrapped to attention for 20 minutes watching everything that happened on screen. There's something about the frame of a movie, because it was the same with you when you were little. A film would come on, and the big logo comes on, and then the, the way in which a big, you know, even even on a TV at home, the way a big, the, way the, the, the film is presented on screen, it does catch your eye. So for 20 minutes, he was absolutely wrapped. And then after 20 minutes, it's like, no, I'm going to go, go and spread Marmite on the carpet. Um, that's uh, that's what happens when they when they when they reach the limit of their um, uh, attention span. So, if anything else springs to mind, go ahead, mate. But if I if I talk about yeah, you crack on. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk my my resolution now. So my resolution for twenty twenty two is to do another year long project uh, of watching a specific set of films. Last year was the year of the Carpenter, where I looked at a selection of John Carpenter films. Um, this year is uh, 2022, a Kubrick Odyssey, where each month we watch an entry in uh, Stanley Kubrick's filmography. Um, we're doing this in chronological order. So in January, we started with his kind of two little sort of very minor debut films. Since then, we're going through one a month. And in December, we'll finish on the last film he released before he died or the last one he completed before he died, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. For May, we're in uh, we're in very controversial territory, uh, Lolita, which was in 1962. This is after Kubrick has left America. He's come to Britain. He's set up here. He wants to make films over which he's got complete control. 
Uh, he wants to go and explore different films he wants to make. Uh, and he proceeded to adapt uh, a sensational and notorious novel from the late 50s by Vladimir Nabokov called Lolita. Now, this caused all kinds of outrage and scandal when it was published. It was much challenged and banned around the world. Like all media hysteria about the subject matter of the book, it completely misses the point of what the book was trying to say. The, the book is tells a story from the point of view of an unreliable narrator, Professor Humbert Humbert, who is a middle-aged man who is attracted to underage girls. And the way, the way he tells it, oh, he's, he's just mm -hmm. a victim of how attractive these girls are and society's refusal to accept their genuine love. But it's quite clear from the ironic tone of the novel that he's an unreliable narrator and the way that the, the, the story is told and the unfolding narrative shows that he's essentially groomed this girl, Lolita, um, and it's not the first time he's done it. He's controlled her. He's destroyed her mother's life. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows why he's got to hide from society. And it shows what a grotesque, pathetic individual he is. Um, and it also shows, you know, the, the misery of, of a girl caught up in this, you know, even if she thinks that what she's doing is of her own volition, it isn't because she's been groomed. Um, much banned. People completely missed the point of what Nabokov was trying to say. Um, and given the stir that this film caused, plenty of filmmakers stayed clear of making it. Um, but Kubrick accepted the challenge. A number, a number of actors steered clear of being in the film that Kubrick made because he thought this is just too hot to handle. Um, but Kubrick wanted to make it because he understood what the film was about. He understood what it was trying to say and he wanted to say that. Let's not steer clear of, of telling a, a story that kind of highlights a, quite a phenomenon. I think it's we, we're so much more aware of stuff like that this nowadays that the storyline itself is quite, um, uh, it's still relevant. Right. Um, it's made in black and white. It's got James Mason as the main character. It's got Shelley Winters, who is a big kind of actor of the 50s, 60s and 70s as the mother. Um, Peter Sellers plays another man who has uh, designs on younger girls, who is a rival of James Mason's. And a young girl called Sue Lyon as the um, as the girl, Lolita. And it's it's very, very well done. It, he went back to black and white after Spartacus, um, I th mainly, I think, because Stanley Kubrick didn't trust Technicolor at the time. He, he, he waited until the late 60s to make colour films because only then did he think the film stock actually looked right. He, he started out as a photographer, so film, it's got to look right or he won't do it. Um, so it, it's very, very well done. It's brilliantly acted. He gets the ironic tone just right. Peter Sellers is amazing, but this film is killed by censorship. There was so much pressure not to show explicitly. And when I say explicitly, I don't mean explicit sex scenes. I mean to actually say out loud and be very clear what's happening. There's so much pressure not to show it too clearly that it reduce, reduces the storyline to a lot of hints and innuendo. Like they barely kiss. So it's like, what exactly are we watching? Do you know what I mean? And it's not that you want to see it, but why would you watch a movie or why would you tell a story without telling the story? Do you know what I mean? Ironically, the Catholic Church in America was a leading figure in the censorship and pressure not to tell the, the full story in this movie, which kind of, when you realise what's happened in the 50, <laughs> 60 years since, yeah. is quite a quite a thing. Um, I wonder why. Um, I have no doubt about Kubrick's intentions. Uh, he's, he's contrasting the unreliable narrator with his wrongdoing. Um, the changes take so much of the sting out of the story. In this, the girl Lolita is 15 rather than 12, and she looks like a young woman, not a child, which completely misses the point. It almost makes you think that they're trying to say it's not that bad what he did, when that's clearly not what they're trying to say. Um, it cuts out that he was involved or obsessed with another young girl before this. It leaves out a lot of the parts of the book where Lolita is clearly miserable with the situation she's in because she's been sexualized and made to behave like an adult before she's ready. Um... And and that combined with the way Kubrick decided to tell the film film story, I think it would have worked if he hadn't been censored so heavily. 
And af afterwards, Kubrick said if he'd known how heavily censored it would be, he wouldn't have bothered. Because what he did was he realised that just using the ironic tone of the novel wouldn't work. So he tried to play up the farcical elements of it, showing how pathetic this main character looks when he's at a kid's high school dance like, you know, hiding behind a, a pot plant, watching the girl dance and stuff like that. And there's a lot of farcical elements to it, because I think that was how he wanted to address the difficult issues that the story tells. Um, I mean, again, it, it gets it across. Some of the original intention survives the censor. The opening shot of the credits is an older man painting the toenails on what's presumably a young girl's feet. And given you know what the film's about, that's a really creepy and unsettling image. Yeah. Um, the grooming dynamic is still there. Um but it, it's just, you know, and there's also scenes where one minute he's talking to her as her father or stepfather because he marries the girl's mother. And the next minute he's talking to her like a jealous lover. It is creepy and it shows you, you know, it's not like anyone in making this film was trying to do anything other than tell how horrible a story this is. Um, but so much of what the story was trying to convey was just killed by the censors. Um, so it, it's a difficult topic. It's not a film I'd, I'd find myself re-watching, I don't think, because it's just, you know, it's a really difficult well, subject ones, yeah. and I'm certainly not going to watch the more modern remake which tells the story more more graphically because I don't think I could stand that um, uh, but it is it's an interesting milestone in, in Kubrick's uh, Kubrick's filmography because it, it showed that he was prepared to step up and try a challenge um, it also inspired an impromptu top 10 on my part which is film adaptations of controversial novels uh, apart from Lolita that top 10 looks like this American Psycho Fight Club David Cronenberg's Crash the Naked Lunch, Lady Chatterley's Lover, the 1981 version, 1984, the John Hurt version, Sophie's Choice, Last Exit to Brooklyn, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, it's a very interesting group of films there um, for people who've got a strong enough stomach for some of the content. But uh, yeah, that was my resolution. Uh, that's that's what I did this month, film watching. Anything else for you to add in terms of films that you that occurred to you that you watched this month? Um, no, I... I Trying to do a kind of Star Wars just thing. So we watched Attack of the Clones, which is still as shit. Um, but yeah, um, other than that, no. Not a bit of a quiet month in the film front, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's our roundup for the month. That's our cubic country for this month. Uh, next month for June, we will be doing Doctor Strangelove, which is probably, <laughs> um, probably Kubrick's second true masterpiece. Uh, but that's the roundup for now. Lovely. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from David Cronenberg's controversial crash to Cold War suspense thriller No Way Out. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click our watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month we're discussing a film I haven't seen, which divided some critics due to its darkly comic treatment of Nazis and anti-Semitism, but which nonetheless garnered multiple awards and box office success. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 25 is Jojo Rabbit. Now, James, you I think you'd seen this already. I'm the one who hasn't seen this, and that's why um, I decided to do it for the classics. 
Yeah, I had a bit of interest in this film because I really liked Taika Waititi after watching Thor Ragnarok, and then I went to watch Is It the Hunt for the Wilder People? Yeah. Is that what that other, so I watched yeah. those films and I thought, you know, I, I like this kind of daft kind of humour, but it's like yeah. with the undertones of like dark topics, because The Hunt for Wilder People is basically about a kid who is, uh, you know, struggling with the fact that his... Um, He's a, he's a foster kid and he's a really kind of violent kid. Yeah, of, yeah he's, he's, kind of he's had a troubled upbringing. They used the, the same kid to play a very similar character in Deadpool 2, didn't they? Yes, but the, the that's the kind of atmosphere that Taika Waititi yeah. kind of uses his humour in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought, you know what, I'll give Jojo Rabbit a try. I like the idea of um, of him playing Hitler because he's a Polynesian Jew. Yeah, um, he's a bit of a unicorn, isn't he? He's a New Zealander of Polynesian and Jewish origin who has an Academy Award, and there's literally can only be one person who can say all those a, things. There's a lot going on. There's with no him, Venn diagram. But no, I find, I find him very funny. I find his stuff yeah. very funny. I find the characters that he creates and the films that he creates very interesting and funny. So I gave it a watch. Um, probably, I didn't watch it in the cinema, but I watched it when it was available to like rent for £3.50 yeah. like a few months later. So that's when I yeah. watched it. So that's when I watched it for the first time and then I gave it a rewatch. Yeah, know, it's, obviously it's, for this. it's now on uh, Disney Plus in constant rotation, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, so in terms of the uh, the background to this film, it, it is based on a book called Caging Skies. It's not as quirky or comedic in tone at all. It's much bleaker, in fact. Taika Waititi read the book, or I think he read half the book and said he was inspired to tell the story of this film, but he wanted to do completely his own thing with it. Um, so he uh, he took the main storyline, which is a young uh, or a teenage boy or a, a young a young boy who's in the Hitler Youth and has been brainwashed to be loyal to Hitler and believe fully in Nazism and and that the Jews are uh, you know subhuman and all those terrible things um, is. You know, has a bit of a coming of age story with his usual troubles with you know other kids and learning to be you know the the kind of young man the Nazis want him to be, and when it turns out that his mother and I don't think this is a spoiler because you find this out very early and it's the main storyline. It turns out that his mother is hiding a, a Jewish girl, a couple of years older than him, um, uh, in the attic. So uh, suddenly he's got this massive conflict between what he believes and what his mother believes and, and meets this girl and it changes what he thinks about a lot of things. Um, Taika Waititi took that main story and gave it his kind of offbeat comic treatment. He invented the idea of Hitler as the boy's goofy invisible friend. That didn't exist <laughs> in the book. Um, and then it, it takes you through kind of the last year or so of the war, doesn't it? It's late on in the Nazi times and you've got a various sort of collection of characters. You've got Sam Rockwell as an, an injured soldier who's no longer deemed fit for duty, teaching the Hitler Youth kids and getting involved in, you know, propaganda and other stuff around this small town in Germany. It's not one of the big cities. You've got Rebel Wilson as like, one of the representatives of like Nazi womanhood is equally goofy and strange. And Scarlett Johansson as his mother, the father is absent. He thinks he's the boy thinks he's off fighting in the war, but he might actually be doing something else instead. And Scarlett Johansson is trying to bring the boy up and shield him from, you know, a lot of the reality of what's really going on. And uh, and she's conflicted as well. And she, you get some nice scenes of you know mother and son sort of in their relationship together. And the story progresses through, you know, the 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 war coming to its conclusion and the storyline of the, of the characters coming to their various conclusions as well. Um, what did, what did you think of it? Yeah, uh, I didn't think it was as funny as his other stuff. I'm not going to lie. Um, but it had some very funny moments where he, you know, he kicks Hitler uh, through a window yeah. and just says, fuck off Hitler, which is funny to hear from a young child. 
Um, and yeah, that kind of that that it was fun. It was a fun film, and it was kind of it had a kind of it was weird. Like these kids were obviously part of the Hitler Youth, but it was it was kind of heartwarming, which is very old. Yeah, I think I think where he was coming into this is there's something quite surreal and absurd about all of this. Um, you know, in the same way that with a very different kind of comic tone and style, Mel Brooks used to highlight the absurdity of Nazism because it's like, well, I, I hope you're all on board with me that Nazism is wrong. Let's explore how absurd it is to think that Jews are different and how absurd and how, how weird your thought process has to be to take part in this in the society that they built. Um, you know, there's a funny bit where he's running around, you know, doing lots of different Heil Hitler salutes as he walks down because he's a kid and he's excited and he's running through the street doing this while people are queuing for bread. And it's like, there's a lot of contrasting being a Nazi with people going about their daily lives and how, how kind of, when you, when you look at it with our perspective, how kind of strange as well as freaky and, and, and creepy that looks. Um, they also, I think it, it must've been intentional as well to do like a PG 13 in America, 12 rated for, for the UK version of this story. And it opens it out and lets a wider audience, including kids basically watch and learn about this story. And that's a, it's a tricky balance you've got to, to take when you make a movie like that, because there's, there's brutality and horrible stuff going on, but you see it through the eyes of a child. It reminded me, not that it was the same kind of film, but I think it's in the same sort of territory as Life is Beautiful, The Book Thief, and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, because there's the story is being told from the point of view of a child and in a way that a child could watch the movie. And I think that's there's quite a balance, I think, that you need to strike when you make a movie like that. Yeah. No, but on the whole, it's a, it's a very... It's a very fun film. It's um, you know, it, it rips the pressure of the absurdities of the, the Nazi party and obviously all the fucking mental things that they were um trying to spout, um, and at the same time, you know, just being a bit ridiculous, which is Taika Waititi's thing. He makes Hitler a, a camp Polynesian, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, always going to be fun to see, um, and yeah, deserved to win its Oscar for best adapted um adapted screenplay because that if you were to tell someone oh yeah we're going to do a um a film based on a book where hitler is this kid's imaginary friend um you'd think okay you gotta be careful with that one yeah yeah Um, well i mean it's similar to to mel brooks who is one of my all-time heroes and he was able to do all sorts of things that people would have seen in, in really bad taste i mean he he pushed the boundaries of bad taste and his stuff about nazis a lot more than um, Taika Waititi does in this film, to be fair, um, mm-hmm. because that's just the way he did things. But I think, you know, Mel Brooks is, in a, is, a, is a Jewish American who fought in the war. He literally fought Nazis. So I think he's... Uh, as is qualified. he still alive? Yep. Touch Jesus wood, fingers fuck. crossed. Um, and he he's as qualified as anyone to tell these stories. He approved of this film, by the way, so that's, that's a good seal of approval. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think this is quite up there with that, but, I mean, there's, there's definitely... It, it, it's valid, you know, Taika Waititi has, you know, Jewish uh, Jewish roots, so I think he's entitled to tell his story his way about anti-Semitism, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, uh, absolutely, uh, it was an interesting film to make, there's a lot of good things in it, I think the performances are excellent, uh, Scarlett Johansson was very good, the the boy was very good uh, as, as Jojo, um, Sam Rockwell and Alfie Allen are very good together, there's a lot of subtext to, the, to, to their characters. Rebel Wilson... Rebel Wilson was doing Rebel Wilson, um, and I've got nothing against that. Um, I find her quite funny, but I kind I find it quite frustrating how she's basically being made to do the same kind of you know kind you know how the way she talks quite slowly, mm-hmm. 
and kind of as if she's being ditzy but not kind of humor that's what she's basically forced to do in every single yeah and film. And, and and the thing is i think there's an element of some of the comedy in this is is quite it's quite sort of um what's the word i'm looking for it's quite sort of screwball and quite sort of goofy comedy and it's like there there is quite a shift in tone between that and some of the more serious moments and i think the the bits where Taika Waititi's Hitler has you know comes and 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 kind of expresses different things that's going on in the boy's head the way some of the other kids do the little fat boy with the glasses who's Jojo's best mate he's got some brilliant lines his comedy is amazing like this is not a great time to be a Nazi as the Russians invade from one side and the Americans invade from the other was a good time tremendous and and when he kind of yeah. drops the bazooka and it blows up one of his, one of their own buildings all of that stuff is very funny and also quite grotesque but some of the I'm not saying I didn't want Rebel Wilson in the movie, but I just thought she almost represented this, uh, the sort of the far end of kind of the goofy comedy tone from the from the rest of it. Um, I mean, for me, the star of the film was Thomasin McKenzie as uh, as Elsa, the Jewish girl. I thought she was absolutely amazing. Um, she's tremendous in everything I've seen her in. She's very, very good. She's one of the best young actors around at the moment. Yeah, I think what what can be said for Rebel Wilson is that some of her funny stuff was when she's not doing that. Did you see her presenting the BAFTAs earlier on this year? I don't think and I did actually. Well, obviously, Will Smith was nominated for King Richard, and she said Will Smith been nominated for Best Actor for portraying, uh, you know, Richard Williams. But I thought his best performance of late was him being okay with all the men that his wife's been sleeping with, <laughs> and everyone in the audience is like, "Ooh!" And she's like, "What? He didn't show up, right?" And that's funny, and that's funny stuff. So when she's not doing that kind of ditzy kind of slapstick stuff i think she kept she's she's on the ball and she can be quite clever and i think we need to see more of that um yeah and you know if taika watiti needed rebel wilson to just do the usual rebel wilson stuff for this film then that's the way it goes right yeah yes fair enough. i mean look i mean i, I really enjoyed it i thought them i was probably more affected by the serious moments than the quirky ones overall um i'm not in the least against someone attempting this kind of thing where you take comedic, comedic treatments of things like Nazism show up how absurd they are. And I think a lot of it worked extremely well. Uh, it was a good movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a thumbs up from me for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a bad film in the slightest. It's it's a good watch. And if you're into if you're into Taika Waititi stuff and you're into the idea of just taking the piss out of the Nazis, then, you know, this film is for you. Yeah, it's also a very good recreation of, like, what a small town in Germany would have looked like at that time in the war. Yeah, and how I thought they you did a were, very good job, yeah. How they were affected by, you know, Nazism. Because we associate it with them, you know, taking over the cities and taking over an entire country and effectively using that to take over most of Europe. But you don't actually get to kind of see the kind of, you know, the, the kind of working class, mm-hmm. almost, you know, peasant folk. You day, know, yeah, day, their being, day-to-day being, lives. Yeah, being, you know, enabled or hampered by the Nazis you know yeah um, and it's very easy to take like what would have been a small town uh, you know quiet small town with, with a kid running around and then stick a big Nazi banner on the wall and give that contrast that bit's easy yeah. Taika Waititi did a lot of very good stuff with little details uh, throughout this film so I thought he did a really nice job on that as well So yeah, I mean that's uh, that's our, that's our classics recommended for this month. I think uh, I wish I got around to watching it sooner. It's, I mean, it's only been a couple of years since, since it's came out, so I've not left it too long to go and see it. it feels like yeah. longer because of COVID, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh, if you haven't seen this, definitely give it a watch. It's streaming on Disney Plus now. <laughs> 
And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we feature a film which started out as one of the biggest releases by Columbia Pictures in the late 1980s, but then vanished without trace due to external bordering politics. The hidden gem for episode 25 is Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So James, your sort of relationship with things like Monty Python, Terry Gilliam and, and all that kind of stuff is, is it's, it's, I mean, it's a generation back from you. I mean, it's a generation back from me because this stuff came out when my dad was a teenager initially. <laughs> um, but it kind of, it's had a very, very long shelf life. And when I was like a teenager, Monty Python was all over the shop. I went to see a, a, a concert by a metal band in about 1990 and they were playing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life over the speakers as we left the um, the, the the cinema. Pe- people came back and back to Python and Terry Gilliam is a central person in Python. This style of comedy and this style of film was still quite a thing then. I I, I don't know what your relationship with things like Python and Life of Brian and, and, and Holy Grail and all, all of that are uh, as background before you watch this film. Um, yeah, um, it's a very interesting setup that, um, yeah, I agree with the whole generational thing. It is certainly of its time for someone like me, but, um, no, I've enjoyed the Monty Python stuff and the Terry Gilliam stuff that I have seen, um, for yeah, sure. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a definite thing. I mean, you think about it, some of the things in Monty Python, like, like the Ministry of Silly Walks and stuff like that, it relates to stuff that these guys grew up with in the, in the forties and fifties and sixties. Um, but there are some there are some archetypes there, aren't there, which maybe survive, and that's why people still like it. Um, but uh, you know, Python's been an inspiration for so many people. Um, so, so background to this film: Terry Gilliam was one of the original members of the Monty Python team. That's uh, he'd done some of the TV stuff that they were all in in the sixties before they got together as Python in about nineteen sixty eight. Monty Python's Flying Circus was a hugely successful TV show. Um, it spawned a number of films. They did a compilation film of some of their best sketches in the early 70s called it now for something completely different. When the Python um, show stopped uh, and they decided to do films, they did Monty Python the Holy Grail, which on a very small budget, they did a King Arthur epic, which uh, is one of their classics. Uh, the debate will rage who's what your favourite Python film is between that and the next one they did, Life of Brian, which was a highly controversial um, uh, when when we eventually get around to doing the Last Temptation of Christ, I think it'll be very interesting to compare um, <laughs> Life of Brian and uh, and and this uh, because it's it, it's a very very good recreation of the time, full of weird Monty Python stuff, and it's very uh, it must be a strange experience for anyone who's done a King Arthur film after Monty Python's done it, or does a film about Jesus after Monty Python's done it, because they have this incredible indelible impression they leave on things. After he'd done those films, or while some of those films are still going on, he started directing some of his own films. He did Jabberwocky, which is based on an Edward Lear um, poem in, in the late 70s, but really sprung to attention with Time Bandits in 1981. It's got Sean Connery in it. It's got um, some of his weird and wonderful kind of animation and visuals in it. It's about a small boy who finds himself traveling through time with a bunch of uh, little people who've stolen uh, powers from God. So they're on the run from God going through different time periods like Robin Hood and ancient Greece and stuff. And it's a chance for, you know, Terry Gilliam to really to really explore stuff. He was like the animator and the visual guy in the Pythons. And this is him taking all of that. And it's still got this kind of screwball, kind of strange, surreal comedy element. But he really starts going into his themes that he wants to explore. 
he went into that further with Brazil, which is really him doing like his kind of uh, satirical version of 1984, where he kind of, you know, shows a dystopian future from his angle, which is all about creativity and, and individuality being stifled by, you know, the forces of kind of normalcy. Um, Baron Munchausen was his chance to do something much bigger. And the background to this is that David Putnam, who was there, a honorary Sunderland fan, by the way, and big film producer in, in Britain in, in the in the eighties. He was behind that kind of British movement with with Gandhi and Chariots of Fire, where the British started to make films that got international attention again. And he became the CEO of Columbia in uh, in the mid eighties and said, "Right, let's do some big films with a difference." And one of the things he signed off was this. And Terry Gilliam said, oh, great, I can do Baron Munchausen with a decent budget. He'd always been interested in this character. He'd seen a, a, like a, a film version of it from Czechoslovakia in the 60s. And he wanted to do a film about Baron Munchausen, who's this... He was a real-life character who was known for telling tall stories. And when he told his tall stories, he would always embellish them and make them sound really ridiculous. And what he was doing was actually... He would tell these at dinner parties and, and, and sort of functions. He'd always tell a story about what he did during the war. And he would he would start saying, oh, this happened and I was almost eaten by a giant fish. And everyone listening to those stories knew he was joking. Do you know what I mean? He was telling, he was joking about how people always embellish their stories about themselves. If you tell a story three times, it's 10 times bigger the third time. Um, but because he became quite known for this, a character based on him became you know, popularized in a series of anonymous comic adventures that portrayed Baron Munchausen as a as a, a, a huge a, a liar, which is why Munchausen syndrome is known as a mental condition now. And he was very offended by this because they missed the point. But nonetheless, an interesting character is created of a of an 18th century nobleman who goes on a series of weird and wonderful adventures where he's swallowed by a whale and escapes and flies on a balloon to the moon and all this kind of thing. And he's been an interesting character that people want to reach out and tell stories about because he's kind of he, he's, he's a character people use to kind of show the power of imagination. And that's where Terry Gilliam was coming from from this. Um, so he was given quite a large budget to tell this story of Baron Munchausen. And in the film, um, it's known as the Age of Reason. There's a, a perpetual war going on in what I think is, you know, contemporary Turkey or Constantinople or Istanbul. Um, and people are just kind of being killed off. The, you know, and, and it's kind of, Everyone thinks this is rational, but it's a war. It's not rational. And in the midst of this, there's a theatre company telling the stories of Baron Munchausen, which is the only entertainment people have got while they're under siege. The real Baron Munchausen turns up, invades the stage and says, you're telling, making an absolute mockery of my stories. Let me tell you how it really happened. And then you get flashbacks to the Baron Munchausen stories, the way he tells them, which start to get interwoven with the reality of the film. Um, and it's full of Terry Gilliam's kind of weird and wonderful visuals. He's almost like crank-driven contraptions, which don't look real. And that must have been weird for you. You know, with CGI now, people would make things photorealistic, whereas back then it was almost... It was kind of the big-budget version of some of those funny animations that he used to do with, like, a foot stomping from the clouds, you know, and God appearing behind the clouds. And he went, well, this is my big-budget version of this. Uh, and it's... Um, it's basically telling the story of how Munchausen's fairy tales come to life and capture people's imagination. Um, and it's it's quite an interesting film. And the reason it's a hidden gem is that it, it didn't do very well in the box office. Yeah, and we'll, bombed, didn't it? And we'll come to why that happened. But let, briefly, or, you know, as, as our next step, what, what did you actually think of the movie when you watched it? Yeah, it was, it was a bit bonkers, as, as as you probably imagine a Terry Gilliam film to go be. But I really, I really enjoyed it. I really, I really enjoy a film that's got a good director, writer, and the cast. The cast is just 
a wealth of really talented actors. So yeah, I, I didn't actually have any problems with it. I know like a film like this might um, might kind of be not someone's thing, if you know what I mean, but that kind of sense of humor and the yeah. kind of the kind of fancifulness of it all. Um, but no, I thought it was fun. I thought it was a bit wacky, but I. I I thought it was good. I, yeah. wouldn't, I probably wouldn't watch it again. I wouldn't call it one of my favourite films or one of the best films we watched on here. Mm-hmm. But by far and away, one of the more enjoyable kind of um, hidden gems that we've watched. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's unlike anything else you've seen, I would say. It's yeah, a very, it's very individual-looking film. And, and, <laughs> and I would say that it's a visual feast. Every single scene or shot is like quite striking to look at. But there's also there's also an underlying theme to this film. What attracted Terry Gilliam to to this this story is two things. Terry Gilliam likes to tell fantastical stories. He thinks it's really dreary to only tell stories that are entirely rooted in reality. He says oh, films and storytelling is an opportunity to tell stories that are more fantastical, and that's why he likes Baron Munchausen. But there's another theme to this um, to this version of Baron Munchausen, which comes from the the Czechoslovakian version of this story in 1961. Um, where the the human imagination, the, the the wish to tell tall tales, tall tales, and and the, and the desire to imagine amazing things is something that society needs. First, so people can actually enjoy that, and they they need that in their lives. But secondly, every great thing that's ever been done in reality has been imagined before it happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's some interesting um, that you know Jonathan Price plays kind of the antagonist in this story, and he represents everything that's rational. And he's just, he just, there's an early scene where he has a hero on his own side of the wall executed because he doesn't want people to do anything too remarkable. Everyone should just kind of plow on and just stick to their role, um, and that's the kind of person he is. And he says these stories of yours are ridiculous. No one's ever walked on the moon. No one's ever you know walked at the bottom of the ocean. Why are you filling people's heads with these stupid tales? And when you watch it, even in 1989 when the film came out, but certainly now, we have now walked on the moon, right? And we yeah. have actually, you know, gone to the bottom of the ocean. And of course it doesn't happen the way Baron Munchausen tells it in, in 1780 in one of his kind <laughs> of dinner, dinner party anecdotes. But part of the reason those things happened is that humans were able to imagine them in the first place. Yeah, And that's what he was interested in doing. It says, you know, without... And that's why in, in similar in Time Bandits, the, the main character is a child who is you know, who witnesses all of these things. And that's Terry Gilliam saying, as a kid, that was me. I was inspired by all of that stuff. And now this is this is why I, I tell these stories now. It, the, the kid in the theatre company, she's the daughter of the, the, the theatre owner, Bill Patterson, who's very good as always. And she she wants to hear all Baron Munchausen's stories. And she goes off on a new adventure with him because, or does or doesn't, because the film's got a very surreal tone, because she wants to be inspired like that. And it's about how are children ever going to dream or aspire to anything other than a dreary shit existence if you don't give them something to dream about. And that's what Terry Gilliam's been trying to do with his movies all these years. And I think it's very interesting that he was able to get that movie made at the time. Now, top of your head, if you were, if you were to just say... This film flopped. What would what would you think be your reasoning why this film flopped? Um, I've got no idea. Is it just that nobody was interested in it? I think if if you, I mean, certainly before I knew the full story, I just thought it was a case of this was a bit too wild and wonderful. It's like you know, everyone else wanted to watch kind of uh, bigger you know action movies with Arnie in. There was no market for something like this. It was a bit of a it was a you know. One of the other films that, that Terry Gilliam's done is about Don Quixote, which is a man who's 
always fighting for hopeless causes. This is Terry Gilliam fighting for another hopeless cause, right? Right. And I think it would be reasonable to think that that's why the film flopped. The real reason why the film flopped is completely different and very, very interesting. Okay, explain. So when when, uh, Terry Gilliam wanted to make this movie... David Putnam had signed off on the film happening, but was then in the middle of like some boardroom politics because his, his approach to this had rubbed a few people up the wrong way. His ideas for making new films and different films with the big studio's budgets um, were very interesting, and I'm glad he got to do it a little bit, but he wasn't able to kind of navigate... The, he was an outsider. He wasn't able to kind of navigate the politics of Hollywood and California. He rubbed too many people up the wrong way, and he was actually on his way out by the time this film was getting completed. And with the people who were kind of running the boardroom at um, uh, at Columbia while this film was being made, Putnam's still there, but he's embattled with all of these kind of struggles. Um, Gilliam had said, this film's going to cost $32 million to make. They said, you're going to have 25. And Terry Gilliam said, fuck you. And he fought for everything he could get into the film, and it cost $32 million. But the film he wanted to make is the film that's on the screen, and it cost what he said it was going to cost, $32 million. By the time the film is getting released, David Putnam has been ousted as CEO of Columbia. He's been fired. Whoever the shareholders are of Columbia have said, fuck you, Putnam, you're out. The incoming CEO of Columbia says, right, we are ditching all of David Putnam's ideas. We're not doing any of that shit. Fuck David Putnam. We're going a different way. And what happened was, while that was happening, um, uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen was being shown on about 100 screens, which is a very, it's a limited release. It's like showing if in, in, in some of the big cities to see how it goes. And how it was going at that time, it was making as much money per screen as Rain Man was the previous year. Right. And Rain Man did $170 million in America and $350 million around the world. So it's on course to be a really good movie, a really big hit, Okay. Now, maybe it's not going to extend the way Rain Man does. It hasn't got Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in it, okay? It's it's a far more quirky story than Rain Man, which is a, a road movie where everyone kind of understands what's happening. But if it even does a fraction of what that initial promising initial release looks like, you're looking at a decent hit. You're looking at quite a strong movie, right? If you look at the numbers of a film uh, that came out like about three or four months after um, uh, Dead Poet, uh, after... Baron Munchausen, Dead Poets Society, that film does $100 million. It's not out of the question that this film does $100 million in America and then whatever it's going to do in in other territories, where Terry Gilliam is very popular, by the way, right? His films always do well in other territories, okay? So, but what happened was they ditched it. After, After that initial kind of run, they just ditched it and they wouldn't produce any more prints. A big film of that budget released by Columbia or any other big studio should get a thousand prints and be shown in a thousand screens at any given time and be shown across the country. And it was just taken out of release. That's bizarre. And it made $8 million. But almost all of that $8 million was on as part of a, quite a strong promising run at the start. And instead of getting a wide release where you actually make some money, and why why does someone spend $30 million on a movie and refuse to let it make money? Is this we're killing this film? We're not having this new approach where weird and wonderful shit gets shown. Fuck you. But imagine a world where Terry Gilliam's weird and strange stories of Baron Munchausen make $100 million. That's one of the top 10 movies of the year. Imagine right. the film going population going, wow, well, I'm not, that Terry Gilliam stuff's not for me. But isn't it interesting that the studios would make something that different and it's a hit? 
What if all the other film directors who see this happening queue up? David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Wayne Wang, uh, Bette Gordon, all of these people who were like quite promising indie directors in the 80s and go, well, I've got an idea. If you'll give me even a fraction of the budget of Baron Munchausen, I've got a big movie for you, right? But instead, they just fucking kill it off. Not only that, they inflated what the... Uh, Terry Gilliam swears on his life that that film cost $32 million. At the end of the year, uh, Columbia said that it cost 45, which only makes it look like a worse hit. And that's just a classic move by Hollywood accountants to kind of, let's take the loss this year. Let's just write off all the profits and, and, and not pay any kind of tax on our profits this year and, and blame the adventures of Baron Munchausen. So instead of being one of the biggest hits of the year, it's seen as one of the biggest flops of all time. And it's all about studio politics and partly about the fact that Hollywood producers, Hollywood executives do not like the idea of the talent doing something different that they, that they don't understand. Than that, what they're used to, yeah. Than what they're used to. They had to put up with it in the 70s because in the 60s, cinema was dying and it only didn't die because people like Coppola and William Friedkin and fucking the people, you know, Dennis Hopper, the people at Easy Rider, they were the ones who said, well, we've got films that work and find an audience. But as soon as they could get control back um, of the studios, the executives said, well, stop that shit, right? We're not having people coming and doing different stories that we don't understand. We want to be in control of this. And if you look at something like Doctor Strange now, where you're saying, well, these big studios just make the same film over and over again, and they don't make it as interesting as they could have done. That's why. That's why. <laughs> exactly right. Because, and the film is about creativity being stifled by people who don't understand why people want to hear tall stories. And it came true. But I, I just think, why would you not want to make a movie make money when it's got an opportunity to? That's bizarre. But that's that's how they were. They were so they were so keen on getting rid of this new different person who was trying to do something different with their studio in David Putnam. And they didn't like the idea of this new film director coming in and doing different weird stuff. And they especially didn't like, like the idea that people might actually get the taste for that sort of thing and start to demand that sort of thing for the rest of their fucking movies. Because that they, they don't know how to make those films. But they, they would have to... kind of thing, yeah. They would have to let people like Terry Gilliam and all of these other filmmakers come and do it. And then you say, well, that's why Martin Scorsese struggles to get some of the films he wants to get made. That's why, you know, all of these people... Because the studio was saying, we're not doing that. We're not letting you out of your box. And this is an example of... Um, of of Hollywood putting creativity back in its box. And, that, and, that's, and that's why this movie was a flop. Horrendous. That's just bizarre. So, I mean, what we'll tell you about this movie is that I liked it, James liked it. I know people have seen it and didn't like it. That doesn't matter. There's all sorts of films that come out that some people like and some people don't. I recommend you give this a watch because it'll be unlike anything else you've ever seen. The visuals are incredible <laughs> and it's different. And I think it's, it's about time people got more chances to watch something a bit different, which is what this podcast is all about. So, watch this hidden gem. Like it, don't like it, tell us what you thought, but this film is worth watching because it's it's not what you Give see it a every chance day. like the studios basically didn't. Absolutely right. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. 
This month, we look at how one of the wilder members of America's 90s new wave pitched a really out there installment of a sci-fi action franchise, which never saw the light of day. Instead, a much tamer film was made a decade later with a different director at the helm. The one that got away for episode 25 features Robert Rodriguez and Predators. So first things first, Predator, the first movie with Arnie, was an absolute mainstay of me and everyone else my age who liked action movies, and it's kind of a classic of its kind. I don't know what your relationship is to that film in the subsequent series. I think I saw it when I was about... 13, so probably a bit young to be watching it, but I remember but thinking, a, no, but, a, but, a, but a good age to be watching it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, should, I shouldn't be saying that as your father, but it's a good age to be watching it. I don't think, I think I watched it on a school trip. The teacher put it on. Oh, his, fantastic. Um, how, yeah, he, how, did he, that, how did that not make it into our podcast about films you watched at school? Because uh, it was, I don't know, because it didn't feel like it was at school. Maybe uh, it, was, I was a school it. it was a school trip. Sorry, that's not the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah no, we were away and he was just, he put on the in-betweeners um, and... Predator. And <laughs> excellent. Guy excellent. just didn't give a fuck. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, it's 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 quite an over the top story. It's kind of similar but better than Arnie's Commando. It features lots of macho men being absurdly macho in an eighties way, but not taken out one hundred percent seriously. Although it does take the main storyline of these people about to get killed by an alien very seriously. So it's got this really, it's it, it it's almost the perfect eighties action film in that way. Um, there was a sequel, Predator 2, which isn't very good. Uh, they didn't manage to get Arnie back. He was busy with Total Recall. Is that with Danny Glover? Yeah, it's a shame it didn't work out. It just it didn't have as good a director. It didn't work quite as well in the in like downtown LA um, as the setting. Bit of a shame. Um, they proceeded later to do the Alien vs. Predator films, which are dog shit. Um, they then did the film that we did get, Predators, in 2010, which um, didn't really have any big star names in it. I thought it was an interesting... Adrian Brody, didn't it? Adrian Brody, um, Michelle Rodriguez, Lawrence Fishburne appears later in the film. I don't know what you thought of that film. I mean, that's instead of the film that we're going to talk about, that's the film we got. What did you think of that film? I know, I feel like, I feel like they kind of tried to modernise it a little bit and um, have it sort of like not on Earth. Is that not on a different planet? That that's one? right, that's right, yeah. Um uh, yeah, that uh, kind of vibe. That, yeah, nah, I don't really care. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't great, but yeah. it felt like they tried to avoid going back to downtown LA and avoid the kind of absurdities of um, Alien versus Predator and trying to find like that happy middle ground of having it in like mm. futuristic different planet but also have the kind of jungle vibes yeah i think if um, i was going to describe it the middle ground is a good way of putting it mate i think they were searching for a middle ground and ended up in the middle of the road is what i would say um it's got some interesting stuff but doesn't quite i don't think it's quite got enough of a hook to hang it on it's got a, almost an ensemble cast you know people i like you know um uh what's his name the guy uh Cletus van damme the the guy from just walton, walton goggins it's and it's got you know some interesting characters it just didn't quite it didn't quite make me kind of want to... Oh, it didn't have any jump-out-of-your-seats on moments. Um, they tried to reboot it again with The Predator, uh, which ended up being more... Oh, I saw that. That was shit. It's more, almost more newsworthy for some of the misconduct that took place during production than the film itself. Although this prequel that we talked about in, in the roundup um, with Comanche Warriors coming up against The Predator hundreds of years ago, I, I'm, I'm here for that. I'd like to see that. That's an interesting spin. Um... In terms of Robert Rodriguez, now, your my first experience with Robert Rodriguez was from Dust Till Dawn. Your first experience with Robert Rodriguez is probably Spy Kids, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. 
And I really enjoyed Spy Kids. I thought that was a really clever idea, like an action film for kids that genuinely works as an action film. I'm not sure how watching it at the time compared to how you look back on those films. Um, I've not seen it since I've seen those films sorry, since I was a kid. And probably looking back on them now, they're probably a bit shit and they're probably not that enjoyable. Yeah, I haven't seen them in a while. Maybe they maybe they haven't aged well. I do remember enjoying them at the time. Yeah, I mean, they were stupid. It was fun having Alan Cumming being a big camp villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed the second one, but they're not exactly, you know, they're not classics. world beaters. Yeah. You know? But I mean, Robert Rodriguez had a real kind of, there was a lot of sort of verve and panache to his films. They were quite visually exciting. Um, I always got the feeling with his filmography that, I mean, Desperado is a fucking great film. Um, Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek have never been better. And that whole kind of uh, Mexican-US border battle storyline, he does that ever so well. Um, But I do think he he does have a tendency to kind of veer off into kind of silly novelty stuff like Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Um, And when he took Machete um, from... uh, the Spy Kids films, the the, the Danny Trejo character, and, and gave him his own kind of series of films, which didn't do anything for me. I always felt he kind of pissed his talent away a little bit. Um, and the most recent thing I've seen him do was Alita Battle Angel, which I haven't seen. But I you have shit. Yeah, and did that seem like a Robert Rodriguez film to you, or a James Cameron film that Rodriguez was just in the director's uh, chair for? It felt like Robert Rodriguez was doing the film, but with like. James Cameron's computer, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, okay. Like his editing software and his special effects team, that's what that film felt like. Yeah, me. yeah, which is a shame. And, and I feel that what what was missing from Robert Rodriguez's filmography is something like this, a big production where he's actually got just enough responsibility on his shoulders where he's got to make the movie work and stand on its own two feet and he can't fall back and saying, oh, I'll always want to do a silly movie like this. It's like, this movie's got to work for what it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he nearly did it with Superman Lives, which we talked about in a previous one that got away, but he, he, he left citing exhaustion. And that's either exhaustion from the films that he was just finishing making or exhaustion because he had a one-hour meeting with John Peters and he never wanted to, to, to talk to him again. Um, but either way, he didn't do that. And this would have been the missing link. Um, yeah. The other thing about Robert Rodriguez, he's almost, he's, he's, he's Quentin Tarantino's partner in crime. And Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez strike me as like, the, the teacher would look a teacher would look on those two kids in class and say these kids are pretty good by themselves but they're a fucking nightmare when they're together so I'm going to seat them on opposite sides of the classroom yeah because when they got together for Grindhouse it just you know I think Robert Rodriguez's entry in Grindhouse Planet Terror is much better than Death Proof but all the bits that I don't like about Planet Terror are all the bits where he goes oh there's a missing reel you've missed 20 minutes of the movie because that used to happen and it's like you know it's he's too gimmicky I think sometimes in his filmmaking but at his best he's very very good he's just not at his best often enough I don't think he's that good as a director I'm not not going to lie I know we call this one the a tall tale of film of a film a top um, director tried to make I don't think he's a top director if I'm being completely honest you know what I think on body of work he isn't I think on potential he might have been and I think what the the story of might have been his was would, would making this film have been the making of Robert Rodriguez Maybe, but I don't um, know. How, how much of the background to this original Predators film uh, do you know, having sort of you know read up on it for, for this had episode? No idea that you were trying to make one. Yeah, yeah. So the, the the script, the original script, is available online. The story of what he was trying to do initially is is out there. Um, it starts with 
something wild, quite bonkers and over the top. Um, so after everything we've just said about Robert Rodriguez, maybe it's like, well, what, what's different then? Maybe he'd have just done another silly over the top version of Predator and we wouldn't have liked that either. Hmm. Um, but the original script has a lot of really interesting things in it. It's got lots of mad stuff in it. It's got gladiatorial combat between predators and aliens and humans. It's got an expansion of the Predator universe, uh, you know, experiments that they've done. It's so full of ideas, it's kind of creaking under its own weight. But the central idea is really interesting. The central idea is that once human, the human race becomes aware that the Predators exist and of their the technology and their weapons and their ability to do that, they become fascinated with the opportunity to get those weapons for themselves and they're prepared to deal with the Predators, yeah, to get their weapons. Right. And so what they've done is, is that all the people, all the humans that find themselves at the mercy of this group of Predators and forced to fight these Predators and each other and have to fight their way out are there because they've been betrayed by the American military who've essentially sold these people to the to the Predators in return for some of their technology. Huh. And in in fighting their way out from these Predators, they then have to go, well, of the humans that are here and of the humans that are sent us here, who can we trust? Maybe some of them are, are going are gonna to betray us. Maybe some of them are working with the Predators. And that's why some of them have got alien technology so that some of them are able to fight back against predators because they've got hold of some predator weapons. And that central idea is really interesting. And what would have been even more interesting is that when this film was being made about mid-90s, 96, 97, the original idea that Robert, Robert Rodriguez had is that Arnie's character, Dutch, from the first movie, comes back and is one of the characters who has been sold to the predators because the predators like him because he killed a predator. And yeah, he's stuck yeah. fighting them. And this is an opportunity for Arnie to fight back against the predators again. Okay. So in the midst of this mad story where you'd have to cut half of it out, there's a very, very, very interesting idea. And the the opportunity to do this was in the late 90s because when Predators actually did get made in 2010, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the governor of California and isn't making movies. So <laughs> there isn't the opportunity to have him anymore. So that's why there feels like there's a bit of a gaping hole. feels like it's messing just a, a, Imagine if the, the hooded person who's revealed in the middle of the film to be Lawrence Fishburne takes his takes his helmet takes his mask off and it's Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger right that's changed the film completely different fucking movie right and the other thing is is that Arnie in the late 90s mid late 90s is still powerful Arnie who determines how a film gets made he's the one who actually literally got Total Recall to happen because he heard that they were making the movie he saw the struggles that David Cronenberg was having doing his version of Total Recall which plays back to what we just said about Baron Munchausen they don't let the interesting director do the interesting story and when it's all fallen to pieces, Arnie puts his hand up and says, I'm going to make that movie because that's a great fucking story. And here's how I'm going to make it work. And he would make it happen. So if Arnie is on board in the 90s to make this film, he's not just going to let Robert Rodriguez, who's not that established director, do all his weird shit. He's going to make Robert Rodriguez streamline his story until it works. And then you've got a Predator story, which opens it out, which is interesting, which has this story of betrayal and some humans working with the Predators, which is interesting. Arnie back and a new, different way of fighting the aliens. You've got yourself a very interesting movie, right? And if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger's filmography at the time, he wasn't doing anything that interesting. He was doing... The film he did in 1996 was called Eraser. Not that great. Um, Jingle All The Way, he did round about that time. There's all sorts of stuff in here which isn't really... He didn't have a great second half of the 90s. Batman and Robin, 1997, I could easily do without that. End of Days 1999, total dog shit. It's, a, it's just a retread of The Omen. It's crap. Um, the Sixth Day, it's all right. Arnie against his clone. 
Any time between 1995 and 1999, if you heard that Arnie was going to do a Predator sequel (laughs) with the guy who directed Desperado, right? I'm fucking on board for that. So there was a window of opportunity where Robert Rodriguez learns how to curb his weird and wide tendencies. If he wants to do that, he can do it as a B-movie in his fucking spare time. But when he's talking to the studios, here you go, Arnie's going to make this happen for you. And there's things I like about Robert Rodriguez. I like the idea that he's worked out to the dollar that how much money he can get for a budget and the studios will still leave him alone. That's really interesting. He just doesn't do enough with those opportunities, I think, to make interesting films. I like Sin City that he did. I like some of the films that he did. But imagine Arnie, who's got the power at that time, says, you've got to make the movie this way. And Arnie would have made Rodriguez look good. Rodriguez would have got an absolute fucking object lesson in how to make a big movie. And I think we'd have seen a very good film, and we also might have seen a different career for Robert Rodriguez. Mm. There's a lot of ifs and buts there. And even if Robert Rodriguez never did anything very good again, I think Arnie could have made good use of Rodriguez and his ideas for that film. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, I think you've, you've put that quite nicely. I'd, I'm still kind of iffy about Robert Rodriguez, but I think if you take Robert Rodriguez from that time period and with the story that you've just described, I think you've completely changed the game with his career and the Predator franchise. I think you get rid of those shitty Alien versus Predator films because effectively that's what Robert Rodriguez was trying to do with those kind of films and with the whole gladiatorial side. Yeah. I find that quite interesting that you chuck them into an arena and just make them fight each other. That yeah. stuff sounds cool. You don't have this these awful Alien versus Predator films. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that changes the game. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you know, you, you, you'll—it's all parallel universe stuff. You'll never know what Robert Rodriguez might have done differently. He's mm. got another another film coming out soon, which which might be interesting. But you know, he, he's he's probably won't. He's going down this little track that he could have done, and maybe he would have done that anyway after after something like this. But I think Arnold Schwarzenegger on board for that movie in the late nineties is a totally fucking different game. Because one thing about Arnie, he was a very shrewd judge of of what made a film work. It's just in the mid to late 90s, the projects just weren't coming his way the the way they used to. Because, you know, everyone, you know, everyone has a peak, right? And then after you've, after you've been at your peak, it's never quite the same. But this, this, Arnie needed this, I think, to just have the final kind of cap to his, his film career before he went to be governor. I mean, what Arnie's doing now, he's appearing in things and some of them are good and some of them aren't. But... This would have been just, you know, this would have been a really nice way for Arnie to kind of cap off that great peak period that he had. Yeah, and that might have stopped him from making the shitty films he's been making recently. You know, the those pre- the, the later Terminator films have been rubbish. They've been nonsense. Yeah. It maybe stops him making the shit films that he's made for the past 25 years. Yeah, that just a little bit more like, I know, I, I know how to make better use of my old-timer vibe that I bring to a film. Because I suppose you could you could compare it to Stallone. Stallone's films back in, in the nineties were kind of shit as well. But yeah, he's, he he's, kinda, he's another one who was just slightly past his time then. But then he kind of went, you know what? I'm going to go back to the Rocky stuff, and I'm going to make these films, you know, good. Like Rocky Five was rubbish, and he thought, no, I'm not quite. I'm not quite happy with the way the same way that Rocky. No, sorry, the Predator Two was shit. Mm. And he, could go, he went back to it, made Rocky Bubble, which I think is a great film. And then the Creed films are also very good. And mm-hmm. he went back and he knows what you know, what makes a good film. And now he's he stopped making as many... He stopped making properly shit films. I really enjoyed him in a Suicide yeah, Squad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Ar- I mean, Schwarzenegger and, and, and Stone are good at slightly different things. But I think the dynamic of Stallone working out what he's good at and, stick, and, and, and making the most of that in his late career is something I'd love to see Arnie do now. 
Totally. Like we talked about, you know, a late career um, Conan film with Arnie. I think something like that would be would be really good if you could make it happen. Um, it's uh, it's you know it's one of those things uh, that just you know we we never quite see. All right, well that's our one that got away. It's definitely we've 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 had to use a little bit of imagination for that, but I think that's worth checking out. Um, the you know, the screenplay is available online, so uh, look into that if you're interested. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic, but every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we're looking at the film which is perhaps one of the better films made by its star, even if its style and message are very different from that of the original. We also take a quick look at a Lockstock-era cheeky Cockney version of the same story. The remake Hate Watch for episode 25 is the Adam Sandler version of The Longest Yard. So, Schlag. so James, you, you recommended this for our Hate Watch uh, this uh, month. Um, what, what, uh, what made you, what, what attracted you to, um, to, this, uh, to this remake for, for the pod? Well, I couldn't remember, because we've done that many of these podcasts now, I couldn't actually remember if we'd already done The Longest Yard. And I thought, why don't we do The Longest Yard? Because I don't actually hate The Longest Yard by Adam Sandler. I know he's made a lot of shit films that aren't very funny, and I actually think this might be his last funny film. Um, I know he's had a bit of a kind of renaissance with uh, Uncut Gems and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but Um, but that that renaissance is for his little side project of occasionally being very good in a different kind of film rather than the main Adam Sandler kind of output. Um, So... um, I thought, well, why don't we have an interesting one where we talk about a remake that people might hate because I know people don't like Adam Sandler and talk about that and see how you feel about it. And, you know, I know one of the listeners said that they didn't actually hate um, this yeah. film either, but it could be considered a remake hate watch. Um, so that's why I thought we should bring up this one. Yeah. Um, so back, background to this film. Uh, in 1974, a film called The Yonk Longest Yard came out in America. Um, we're directed by Robert Aldrich and starring Burt Reynolds. It was released in the UK as The Mean Machine because The Longest Yard doesn't basically mean anything in Britain. Um, the Longest Yard in the context of the movie is in American football, which is the, the you know, NFL, the, the sport that, that the film covers. You have to make a set number of yards before you can go again. You have four opportunities called downs to, to make 10 yards. And sometimes that last yard is the hardest one to make that last yard is the longest, right? It's almost a figure of speech in that way. But also this is all happening in the prison yard, okay? So there's a there's a you know there's a reason why the film's called that in America, which didn't make much sense in Britain. So they called it the Mean Machine, which is the nickname of the team. Uh, the the director Robert Aldrich, he started out in the fifties and he made some memorable entries in the tail end of the film noir era. Uh, Kiss Me Deadly was a really tough and violent crime thriller it was like a really dark, cynical, violent version of, of Philip Marlowe and The Big Sleep. That film's influenced everything from David Fincher's Seven to The Glowing Briefcase in Pulp Fiction. He's a big anti-establishment figure. His films tend to be quite cynical and violent. The most famous of his latest films is The Dirty Dozen in 1967, which is the original convict slash misfits on a suicide mission film, which launched a million imitations, including Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. And frankly, the, the, the recent Suicide Squad film has a, has, has a vibe from that as well right um so 
the storyline of the film is that Burt Reynolds was a uh, a star quarterback in NFL. He's fallen on hard times. He got done for match fixing. He's a bit of a drinker. He's in a shit relationship. He's he's sick of it. He he gets done for drink driving in his ex soon now ex girlfriend's stolen car, and he gets like a couple of years in prison or three years in prison. And while he's there, the prison governor, who's obsessed with American football, wants him to help his team. This eventually takes the form of Burt Reynolds uh, being the quarterback of a team made up of convicts and playing against the prison guard team that the governor runs. Um, And obviously the whole thing is meant to be an opportunity for the guards to kind of batter and hammer the convicts, um, but they've got other ideas. And it was a bit of a counterculture film. It uh, it made parallels between the, the you know between the prison governor and Nixon, the corruption, uh, you know the prison system, the American authorities. It came from a very cynical time where you would almost take the side of convicts just because they were up against authority. Um, and a bit of a comment on American football itself, in which it kind of represents that almost violence and brutality of the sport, almost represents America itself. It's similar to the way they have a long sequence involving an American football game in in the film Mash. It's you know it's it's an interesting kind of way of of looking at the sport and and of bigger bigger topics. One of the big films uh, of 1974, star making turn for Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds went on to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, kind of movie star of the 1970s. And then in 2005, Adam Sandler um, goes out to remake it. And I mean, by that time, this is 2005. Had you start? Have you had you seen any Adam Sandler films by the time you've seen this, or or is this all a little I bit later? I don't think for I you? watched this when this came out. Um, I mean, me either. I what the first Adam Sandler film I remember was the one that my, um, I think my mum has a soft spot for the Wedding Singer. So that's one yeah, it's a good movie. It's a good movie when I was about 12. And then um, I think Billy Madison, which is shit. Happy Gilmore, which um, is okay. Yeah. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's it's an interesting time for Adam Sandler because he was coming back off of like an interesting run. Uh, the Wedding Singer was his first really big hit, although Happy Gilmore had done okay. And then he did a series of these big star vehicles, which were doing amazingly well. Anytime he strayed from that formula, his films didn't do that well. The idea of Adam Sandler is that kind of um, uh, temperamental man-child who's got something fundamentally decent inside him and, and, and you know, and it, this all plays out in the form of quite a broad comedy. He, you know, people love that. They didn't love it when he tried to do anything different. Punch Drunk Love is one of the best films he's ever done, but it was never going to be a box office titan. Um, he did a film just before this remake called Spanglish, which was meant to be a comedy drama. The guy directed it was the guy who did As Good As It Gets in Broadcast News. So this is Sandler trying to do something a bit more grown up. Uh, and it's a massive flop. Um, so he's at a kind of a crossroads where he'd like to do more than just that typical Adam Sandler comedy routine, but the box office is telling him to do something different, right? Right. And I think Adam Sandler makes three different kinds of films. He makes the very occasional absolute classic, like Punch Drunk Love, and he got you know, nominated for all sorts of awards for Uncut Gems and stuff like that. Um, he shows where he, where he shows that he's actually a very talented actor. There's a lot of absolute lowest common denominator shite like, like Jack and Jill where he seems quite content to make money insulting the intelligence of his audience. But he also does a number of broad Adam Sandler comedy vehicles which are quite good if you like that sort of thing. The Wedding Singer is a very good example. And this, like you say, is probably the last one he did like that where it was a big hit movie with Adam Sandler kind of playing the kind of the main sort of character in a broad comedy. Um, it's not quite typical of those vehicles. Um but I think it's all right for what it is. 
Um, yeah, it's funny. I like I like Chris Rock's character in it as well. I think it's just uh, there's some quite sharp dialogue. It's not just like goofy set pieces. There's some quite funny lines, and it's yeah, quite it avoids Adam Sandler's later tropes of just like yep. putting on that stupid little Nicky voice and you know dressing up like a woman. It's like Adam Sandler's thought about this and yeah. know, come up with some funny lines for the film, which is you know better than what we're used to from him. Yeah. The story's good, like you say. You are you do end up on the side of the the convicts because they make the prison officers and the governor as dislikable as they possibly can. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's interesting because I think it works as a movie for what it is, and I think it gives Adam Sandler a chance to do something where in a big... And this film was quite a big hit. It's like 170, 190 million dollars at the box office. It's a comparable hit to his other big hit movies. Um, and, you know, it works because the story works. Um, it, I think it, it loses something for being completely robbed of the original kind of context of the movie. Now, you couldn't... There's no point in trying to do the, the remake... Uh, in the 70s anti-Nixon style that they did that movie. That's not going to work. But there's no, there's not really anything that kind of represents the America of the time in the movie. It is just that prison and that governor and those convicts. There's nothing outside of that. Um, and that does lose something a little bit. And I think it is a little bit harder to kind of... Um, he's never going to sell ice cream going at that speed. Um, <laughs> it, it, Welcome it, to West Scotland. <laughs> It, it does lose something by not having that, by not kind of, you know, the George Bush, you know, junior regime was going on in America. There was stuff happening. I don't think Adam Sandler's interested in, in that kind of politics, so it was never going to be in the movie. Um, have you seen the original, the Burt Reynolds original? No, I haven't. I mean, again, it, some of it is very, very 70s, but I mean, it's got... Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, just, I mean, just one comparison. The cheerleaders in in the movie they get more screen time outside of the actual main game at the end in the Adam Sandler version, and that's good because I think those characters are quite funny. But I think it's it's quite. I think the way they're used in the final game are are even better because the idea that in 1974 when things were quite homophobic compared to now, where the where the commentator just goes, oh yes, and those are the cheerleaders. Do you know what I mean? And they're just kind of accepted because you've got to have cheerleaders, right? Um, it just misses a little bit of that slightly more satirical, ironic tone. And I think Adam Sandler neither convinces as a former professional football player, uh, nor does he compare to Burt Reynolds in the same role, because I don't think anyone could. But I think he's all right. I think he does okay. I mean, Burt Reynolds was just an absolute giant movie star. And the way that they play him in the movie is that, in the original Burt Reynolds version, he finds a kind of camaraderie with the convicts. You know, they get he gets in a fight with this guy on the work uh, detail, like digging the swamp, because this guy's been getting on his nerves ever since he started there, and they just start battering each other. They start putting mud down each other's trousers and eventually rolling around in the in in the mud fighting each other. And when they get broken up by the guards and everything, and they're in trouble, they just look at each other and laugh. It's just kind of like you know, you know what? It's I'd, I'd rather you know he's kind of almost enjoying being in a bit of rough and tumble compared to kind of his empty previous life. And it's in that was very, very Burt Reynolds. He did that a lot where getting into a fight in a bar was something he almost did for fun. Do you know what I mean? And that kind of fuck it, don't, don't, you know, devil may care attitude. He just wore so beautifully in the seventies and he just had so much charisma. Um, and Adam Sandler was never, ever going to quite compare to that. And Burt Reynolds was almost a pro footballer. He was, he was such a promising um, uh, player in college that he was, you know, if, he was getting ready to be drafted to the NFL. 
but he had a serious knee injury and gave it up and, and did acting. So Burt Reynolds knew how to play American football. Yeah. Adam Sandler, I don't know if Adam Sandler played football at high school. He looks all right, maybe he, in it. Um, he plays a lot of basketball, so I imagine yeah. he probably played a bit of that as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he looks like he can throw a ball. Um, but uh, it's all right. I mean, it's all just a little bit less significant in the remake. The brutality of the guards, the segregation of the prison, you know, but but it still works because it's 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 a it's a solid storyline, um, and you know, you know the the fact that he refuses to be bowed, the fact that he kind of decides, you know what, I, I'd rather stick up for for my mates next to me, even if they're convicts, than than give in to authority. It all works. It all sticks. It all it all it all stands up. I think it's just it's 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 a tiny bit watered down. I mean, the the, the tone of the first film was so cynical. You know when the the the, the guy. Um, gets gets hit so hard that he's knocked out, and the the convict player leans over and says, "I think he shit himself." And then the the referee says, "I think he shit himself," and all the commentators go, "Yeah, I think he shit himself." The original line in the movie was, "I think I broke his fucking neck," and the fact that they would play that for a laugh just shows what a cynical tone the original film had. Huh. Because that's what American football is like. I mean, they hit people that hard that someone could break their fucking neck, and that's entertainment. And it's it's quite it's quite cleverly done like that. And also the um. When he throws the ball at the referee and hits him in the nuts, in in the original film, Burt Reynolds is doing that and throwing it at the um, at an opposition player, the guard that everyone hates the most, and they keep doing it and keep doing it until the guy can barely stand up. So, um, just one or two bits of rebellion worked better in in the first movie. And the first movie is actually it's quite an exciting sports movie. It really works as a sports movie. The, the football game is really well shot. Um, but you know, I, I have I have to say it. They they hit all the they hit all the, the main beats in, in in the main film and um it still stands up. Yeah, no, I agree. I've not seen the next one that we're about to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So you can indulge me. Yeah. So, Mean Machine is the British remake. We'll only spend a couple of minutes on this, but I thought it was an interesting comparison. Uh, in two thousand and one, uh, at the height of like the lock, stock, snatch, Guy Ritchie, Cockney revival of British film. Uh, so it's all full of cheeky Cockneys giving it giving it large. Danny Dyer is a supporting role in it. Danny Dyer! Vinnie Jones is the main character. Uh, and otherwise, it's exactly the same storyline. The governor's obsessed with football. The guards are um, have a team. Uh, and the convicts put together a side that kind of manages to make it work. Omar Jalili's quite in it. In it he's quite funny. Um, I mean, it's not a patch on this. And it's not a patch on this for a number of reasons. First of all, Association football, known in America as soccer, and American football are so different. Okay, you can't the in the in the original and especially in in the Adam Sandler remake. There's a scene, and the opening kind of scene of the Adam Sandler remake, they all just go and absolutely clatter their opposition numbers so hard because they've just been dying for an opportunity to do that, and they miss. You know, they completely ignore the fact that the the prison guard team's got the ball and they run in a touchdown immediately. And the players don't give a shit because they've been waiting for years to fucking hit their opposite number that hard. And it's legal to do that in American football. So they just go, well, you considered a touchdown. Don't do that, right? In a game of football, you can't do that. You can't slide in two-footed and break the leg of your um, of your opposing number, or you'll just be sent off, right? So it's much tamer. It also has the problem that even though Vinnie Jones is a former professional footballer, he doesn't look convincing in the slightest as a former England captain, one of the finest England players there's ever been. He can barely do a keepy-up. It's hilarious. The keepy-ups he does in this film, I reckon I could do if I had two weeks' practice, and that is the best he can manage. Um, and there's too much kind of chirpy Cockney stuff in it. In the end, it's really 
just it's actually more of a remake as as the listener said it's much more of a remake of escape to victory than it is of um uh, uh of the longest yard um it's not bad i wouldn't go out of your way to see it Omar Jalili's good um the one thing that i think you would find amusing unintentionally amusing is jason statham is in the film yes except he plays a scotsman even though he can't do accents yes and he plays the goalkeeper even though he's only five foot eight yes <laughs> But he is quite funny. This at this time, Jason Statham was doing stuff where he, he was playing these kind of slightly unhinged characters, and he's quite good at it because he plays the psychotic kind of prisoner that they only let out for the match, and he's in chains the rest of the time. Um, he did something similar in the remake of the Italian Job, and he's the only good thing in that remake of Italian Job is kind of the character just goes nuts and and, and decides to kind of just go on a car chase. Um, it, it's a it's a footnote. Um, it's it's not like Escape to Victory didn't have enough Cockneys in it. Michael Caine's the lead actor and Bobby Moore's in it. But they decided that this, what they really needed was to have a football film that was just more Cockney than that. So if your tolerance for Cockneys is is, is limited, you, you might not make it all the way through. But it's all right. It's all right. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month features a spotlight on the films and career of David Fincher. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. The podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. We also take a look at its proper naughty little brother, <laughs> the Mean Machine. After the intermission, the second reel of the seventh. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. What the fuck? <laughs>